All right, guys, okay. recording in three, two, one. Today, we have a very special guest, my own research coordinator, Erica Huang. Erica attended Wellesley University in Massachusetts, where she received her bachelor's degree in biological sciences. She then received her master's of science degree in biomedical and translational sciences at the University of California, Irvine. Erica currently works as a re- clinical research coordinator at UCI Urology under Dr. Thomas Allering, focusing on prostate cancer and robotic radical prostatectomy research. She also recently applied and successfully was admitted into multiple medical schools here in the United States and is currently preparing to transition into her first year at medical school. Welcome to the Medits Podcast, Erica. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah, so just before we get started, have you already decided on what med school you would like to attend? Um, so not officially. Um, I have a few options right now, and I'm still waiting on um, a couple of schools to get back to me, as well as a few wait lists. So mm-hmm. um, not officially, but I do have an idea of where I might end up. Okay, sounds good. And you're feeling pretty confident now that now that you know you're guaranteed in somewhere you have nothing yes. to worry about. Yes, it's um I think it's a huge relief um just to know that there's somewhere to go next year since you know it's so hard to get into medical school these days. I know. And um speaking on research, since there's a aspect that we talked about in previous episodes about how I got my research position specifically and mm-hmm. a lot of uh, people have asked me and approached me about how I was able to get research or what caused me to think about research. And given that you're the coordinator for our research team, uh, when and how did you first decide that you want to pursue research or, you know, just kind of get involved in some sort of research? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, I actually, it was kind of upon chance. So I wanted to find some shadowing opportunities Uh, my freshman year in college. Um, And at that time, I just, you know, blasted emails to a bunch of doctors at UC Irvine um, to see if they would let me shadow for my winter break. So my winter break was six weeks at the time. So it was Mm -hmm. a decent amount of time um, to do some shadowing. Um, And the only person who replied to me was actually Dr. Landman, um, who is the chair of our Department of Urology here at UC Irvine. Um, and he, so I was actually part of the summer surgery program in high school that was also run by the urology department. So I think he recognized my name um, and he was like, you know, sure, um, let's just get the paperwork started for you to come shadow us in the OR. So I was able to shadow for three weeks in the OR with a bunch of different doctors. Um, but in between cases, <laughs> I ended up uh, under Linda, who was our previous research coordinator. Um, she's currently, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and she's currently in medical school. I'm um, doing an MD PhD, so a lot of research there. Um, but I was just, you know, helping out in the lab, you know, doing random things, processing labs, um, entering data because I was bored, um, just waiting for surgeries. And I realized that was kind of, kind of fun. Um, and I, at the end of the three weeks, um, I decided to ask if I could come back, and they said yes. So. That started my two years with uh, UCI Urology. I did research over the summer break since I did go to school in Boston. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't do it during the um, year, like the school year. But the two summers and one other winter um, where I did do research under Dr. Allering's lab, 
Um, so why did you pick UCI, uh, UC Irvine, given that you were going to school in Boston? Why not another UC nearby or another school? Is there a specific reason you went for UCI? Uh, it- <laughs> not really, besides proximity. Um, so mm-hmm. I grew up um, born and raised in Irvine. So I knew I would be back here for <laughs> winter break. So I just picked the nearest university hospital mm-hmm. um, to email. But I think it was a very good choice. Um, UCI has one of the best urology departments in Southern California um, and all the physicians there are really willing to mentor like they're very very big on mentorship and teaching um, and influencing the next generation of mm-hmm. um, researchers as well as physicians so yeah I think it was a very good choice in the end absolutely and how did the actual jump from Dr. Landman's lab to Dr. Aldring's lab happen yes so I um, so Linda was actually the research coordinator for Dr. Allering, mm-hmm. uh, but at the time, Dr. Landman's team was transitioning research coordinators. So um, Linda was the one that actually processed my paperwork. Um, so I was kind of split between Dr. Allering and Dr. Landman's team for the first summer. I did a lot of more like field work as in like I was in the clinic doing, uh, collecting surveys, talking to patients, getting consents. My on Dr. Lamon's team because they do more um, like clinical trial studies. Um, So a lot of hands-on stuff. Um, While Dr. Allering's lab is a lot more retrospective, lots of surveys um, that are usually not done like in clinic, they're usually mailed to us back then before uh, REDCap or automatic online surveys were a thing. Um, So it was very, like two very different types of research that I was exposed to. but because I was going to school at Wellesley, it was easier for me to be involved on the less hands-on physical stuff. Um, so eventually I transitioned more to Dr. Allering's team. Um, the research also was, um, I think, easier for me to finish in um, the time that I had there since it was only like a couple of weeks in the summer, actually like three months in the summer. Um, but those projects were um, easier to finish up since it was not from the beginning of data collection, but rather just a retrospective study. Yeah, so I did briefly mention in a previous episode uh, just about Dr. Allering in general. For those of our viewers who don't really recognize or know him, uh, is there anything you would like to say about Dr. Allering and who he is? Um, that's a big task. Um, yeah, <laughs> <it really> is. <laughs> um, Dr. Allering, I think, I mean, what you would see online is he's one of the greatest robotic prostatectomy surgeons in the United States, if not the world. He's done the first robotic prostatectomy in some of the, some countries in the world. And he was amongst one of the first surgeons that adopted the robot for prostatectomy in the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, he also has taught generations of robotic surgeons um, including Dr. Lee, who is currently at UC Irvine, um, and a lot of the current doctors that you see doing robotic surgery now. Um, and he is has also, I'll talk about the clinical en- or clinical research end because that's who I am, his clinical research coordinator. Um, he also has the most robust, um, one of the largest databases for prostatectomy, maybe even prostate cancer in the United States probably. Um, that man is so dedicated to research, to data collection. Um, he hand fills out this Excel sheet that is 
humongous. All every single one of his sur surgeries, every single one of his patients, their outcomes, their preoperative, perioperative um, demographics are all recorded in that sheet, um, and we follow these patients until they die, basically. Um, so every checkup, we ask them to fill out a survey. Um, and even if they don't follow up with us, we still expect them to fill out um, their post-operative surveys so that we know how they recover. So he's an incredible surgeon, an incredible, incredible physician, uh, but also an incredible researcher. And that's something that I think um, many patients don't know, um, but I'm sure they do too, because a lot of his research does impact their care directly. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's also a, a point on that too, is um, given now a lot of our patients are people who explicitly look for Dr. Alderink as well, or they mm -hmm. refer to Dr. Alderink. Yes. So that, that just kind of adds onto the layer of like, he doesn't have to go find pa patients, find him no. in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, could you briefly touch on some of the papers that you've worked on or some of the research you've worked on? We don't have to go too in depth about it, just uh, maybe some brief points or some brief things that you've enjoyed or you're really proud of. Yeah. Um, so I recently finished my master's in biomedical and translational science here at UC Irvine. Um, and my thesis project was done with Dr. Allering. Um, and it was one of the um, coolest projects I've ever done in research. Um, and I think Dr. Allering may also say that it's one of his most important projects that he's ever done in his career, um, which I felt very honored to be a part of. Um, but essentially um, it was, looking at patients who have a recurrence, a biochemical recurrence after their primary treatment of robotic prostatectomy. So after removal of prostate, we still see prostate-specific antigen or PSA in their blood draws. Um, and this usually indicates that there are leftover prostate cells within the body. Um, and if you know any other cancer, you know that a recurrence is a bad thing. Right. Um, and yeah. that's not something that we want to hear after we receive treatment. Um, however, prostate cancer is very different from other cancers in that a lot of patients that do have this biochemical recurrence. So just this production of PSA in their bloodstream um, uh, after their primary treatment, they're actually able to live quite a long time after um, biochemical recurrence. Mm -hmm. um, and we wanted to study this population of pa patients to see, you know, what really indicates a problematic patient. Can these patients remain on a no treatment afterwards? Um, and is this PSA just so and so called this benign phenotype, um, which is what Dr. Allering has named some of these patients because they're living their lives, um, they are making all this PSA, but it doesn't seem like it's, um, it's a, a cancer that is, that was the same as the original prostate cancer that we took out. Um, and it's acting in this very benign fashion. Um, so we wanted to study this and the primary way we studied this was how fast this PSA um, that we were drawing was doubling. Mm -hmm. uh, and that gave us an indication of how fast these cells are dividing. If you know anything about how cells divide, um, you know, how they double. Um, yeah. So looking at the PSA doubling time, uh, we 
we think would also give us an indication of how fast this cancer is recurring mm-hmm. um, or growing. Yeah, so that study um, was very novel. Not a lot of doctors would take the chance to follow these patients with biochemical recurrence without like radiation treatment or hormonal treatment. Um, but it's really taxing on, on these men's bodies. Um, if you can imagine, like basically you are incontinent, some of them um, impotent, um, and a lot of them experience like fatigue, even depression. So it's, it's hard. So if we can not treat these patients with these harmful uh, systemic treatments, we would we would want to. Um, so that's a gist of what my um, mm. thesis was on and the current project I'm still on. This is going to be an ongoing project um, that will last for a couple, probably a couple more years um, because there's so much we still don't know. Um, but essentially that's one of the biggest projects I have partake, partaken in. No, that's absolutely, no, that's absolutely something to be proud of for sure. Do you have any advice for people looking to find research? Um, I think as a research coordinator, um, I've seen a lot of students come through um, either just to interview or uh, have come through the lab and stayed with us um, that have left. Um, And as a research coordinator, I will tell you that when we look for under, especially undergraduate students, we are not looking for experience. Like sure, experience is great, um, but what we're looking for is honestly just the ambition the drive the passion to learn um, if you're willing to learn we are willing to teach you um, if, but if you are not willing to learn there's nothing we can do um, so as long as you come into any research position or interview for any research position showing that you're inclined to learn that you're passionate about learning that you are willing to spend the time um, with us to learn to ask questions, um, that's all you need. Um, that's, that'll make you a great researcher, a great research student. Um, and yeah, being a hard worker, that's also important, but that's Mm -hmm. mostly what we look for. Um, there really isn't any secret sauce. Absolutely. No, that's completely true. And yeah, it's expected usually when, wherever we are, um, picking up, you know, undergraduate students, we, it's kind of hard to expect yeah, you know, it's one thing where it's like working in a lab and it's like, okay, yeah, we kind of want you to learn how to pipette, you know, in a typical, you know, like a right. campus-based research lab, because that's mm-hmm. like a skill that you can pick up in class. But mm-hmm. learning about prostate cancer or just cancer is a very, it's going to be over 99% of undergraduate students' heads. You know, it's that's right. like a, I, it's like, it's a lot to expect somebody to mm-hmm. grasp really like the, such a complicated topic. Right. But um, yeah, so we should definitely shift gears and talk about the med school application. Uh, Prem, you want to take this off? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, as you might have touched on a little earlier, you said that the med school application itself, it is starting to become more competitive and increasingly difficult. So Mm -hmm. I want to hear like, how was that experience for you? How was selecting schools, maybe choosing the schools you wanted to go to? How was writing the app itself? Like, how was that whole experience for you entirely? Yeah, um, it definitely is a very daunting process. Um, There's a lot of things to keep track of. There's a lot of things that you won't even know until you go through it. Um, But I would say it begins with the MCAT. So yeah, Uh, once you have your MCAT score, you have your GPA, 
you're going to be able to look at um, the MSAR, which is the AAMC's like medical school. I, I actually don't know the um, <laughs> acronym for it or what it stands for, but essentially it has all of the medical schools in the United States as well as the Canadian ones. Um, and they'll give you the median or yeah, median GPA um, for their science GPA as well as cumulative GPA and the median MCAT score. And it has all, a lot of other information like how many students they take, um, what the breakdown is demographically, how many of them have done research, et cetera, et cetera. Um, anything you need to know about that school. And once you have mostly your MCAT as well as your GPA, you will be able to start narrowing down the schools that you might fit their, um, like their student demographic for. Um, so the first thing I did was, you know, put my own stats in, look at the schools that were around my um, stats. And honestly, there weren't a lot. I had a very bad, not very bad, it was, um, less than most schools average GPAs for my undergrad career. Um, but my master's program had, well, I had a much better GPA. Um, however, they don't, they don't average um, for medical school. So that's one thing that you'll learn as you go through, if you do decide to pursue like postgraduate um, training uh, before medical school. Um, so you primarily want to only look at your undergrad GPA. Um, and because I didn't have a lot of schools that were in my range, um, my MCAT, however, was really high. Um, so then I would look at schools that maybe had higher GPAs, but had, um, like a closer or like they were, their median MCAT was a little bit lower than my score to kind of like balance it out. Um, and that was something that was unique to my application because I didn't fit in anywhere where I had a lower GPA, but a much higher MCAT. Um, and I wasn't also sure like how they would factor in my postgraduate, um, like uh, my postgraduate training, um, especially since I was two years out and I had a lot of publications more than the average applicant going in to the cycle. Um, so I applied very broadly. It was a little bit difficult um, because I did apply to 45 schools. Um, I don't recommend doing that if you can help it um, because you do have to write a secondary application for every single school you apply to on top of the primary already. Um, and it's also very, very expensive. So that's something I would start saving up for um, if um, you are thinking of applying. Um, I'll be honest, I didn't have um, the fee assistant program. Um, I don't qualify for it. Um, so applying to 45 schools, I think cost me around five to $6,000. Um, so disclaimer, please start <laughs> saving money. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. In regards to like the schools, like the range of schools you got, um, how do you decide on, oh, like the, like what, what factors were you looking at in terms of like, what made you decide on a school you wanted to go to versus something you didn't want to, like you weren't really interested in? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, my primary one was I only wanted to apply to schools that I had a chance at, um, even if it's a small chance. Mm -hmm. um, so I did apply to like a few reaches, um, but mostly schools that I thought I had a decent chance at. Mm -hmm. uh, and then secondly, I looked at location. I think that was the most important thing to me. Um, because I wanted to be in places that I had support systems already, or I knew I would be comfortable going to. 
Um, so I didn't apply to a lot of schools in the Midwest because I don't have any relatives in the Midwest. I've never been to the Midwest. I don't know how I would fare in the Midwest. Yeah. Um, but, you know, California, I'm comfortable with um, lots of family here um, on the East Coast. I have quite a bit of um, family as well. So mm-hmm. most those are the most places I applied to. And then like the third thing I really looked at was um, like the opportunities for research. Um, Cause I knew that I wanted to not do an MD PhD, but I did want to be a physician that is in academic medicine in some way or fashion in the future. So I definitely wanted to be in a place where I had mentors in that area, as well as the opportunity to continue doing research um, if possible. So that was like my own third, like most important criteria. Um, And then other things that were like, less important to me but still things I thought about um, were like class size um, like the demographics of the class Um, for me I feel like being around people that are similar to me or are culturally similar to me was really important as well because when I was in college like that those people became like my family in college um, since I was living away from home so I was also looking at like the demographics of these um these student populations. And all of this you can find on MSAR. Um, they literally break it down for you. So you're able to see it very easily. Yeah, so hope that and, answered that question. <laughs> no, you perfectly did. And for like a last, like kind of like any advice, final advice you have to anyone that's currently about to write their apps or currently writing their apps, do you have anything you can say? Yeah, yeah, um, definitely spend the time on your application like it will take much longer than you expect it to um I think I went through maybe like 12 drafts of my personal statement before I was really happy with the one I submitted um and even then I was like I'm not sure if this is going to be my final draft things come up as you keep working on it as you keep working in medicine as well um so you only get I forget how many characters. It's not a lot, like 2,300 characters to say why you want to be a doctor. Um, So you really want to perfect that 2,300 character statement because that's, it's your pitch. Um, And besides that, also make sure you keep track of your activities. Um, You only get 15 activities to put in your MCAS application. um, And you need to write a, I think it's 200 or 300 character description for it. And then how many hours and which from which month of which year to which month of which year you did the activity. So if you're like me, I didn't keep track of things since my freshman year. So it was kind of, I had to like go back to Google Calendar and my planner from freshman year and like flip through and see when I actually started things and when I finished. Um, so if you're a pre-med listening to this, please keep track of all of that in a journal somewhere or on a spreadsheet. It'll definitely help you and save you a lot of time in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the last thing is like for people who are upcoming about to apply, if you're working um, or even if you're not working, please set aside a lot of time for your secondaries, more time than you think you want to need because some schools gave me like nine essays. Some schools gave me two, Um, but uh, you have to turn those secondaries around within 14 days. Um, That's the ideal. I did not make that 
um, because I underestimated the amount of time I would need. So I ended up, some of them I submitted within like three weeks and then definitely not more than a month after you receive it. Um, mm. So, and they all come within like the same two weeks. So you, I've received, I think maybe 10 secondaries on one day. Um, so you will need a lot of time to sit down and write those. And if you can pre-write, do a lot of, you know, soul digging, a lot of reflection mm. prior to the secondary season, it will help you a lot to have a lot of these pre-written scenarios that you can stick into the prompts that the schools are giving you. I guess, so, guys, we're going to have to think of this as like the paparazzi's reaching out to us. We just got to <laughs> write a bunch of essays, let them know. Yeah. Like, Guys, come on. I don't have that much time, but all right. You know, just give them the content. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to, and you got to reuse a lot of content too. That's the only way. Um, but it's good to keep some of those things, um, even as you go through like your pre-med experiences right now, just to keep those like stories in your head. Like, oh, that yeah. like really resonated with me. Let me write it down now. So in the future, I have that to reference too. Absolutely. Pre-meds are superstars. Um, so to kind of go with the secondary applications, how did you prepare for the different interview types? And do you have any advice for like interviews specifically? Yeah. So um, actually, let me pull up the book that I read. Give me a second. I'm just going to find the title of it. Um, yeah. So there's a couple of different types of interviews that I, I personally experienced. I think I went to maybe <laughs> seven or six or seven interviews. Um and the first one that's like the infamous one is the MMI. So the multiple mini interview, it's basically like speed dating. You go through like 10 to 12 um, different stations. It's usually done in person, but this year it was done online. So I basically went through like Zoom rooms. Got rooms. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. And um, basically they range from like ethical questions. They'll just be like, okay, this is the scenario. What is like, what would you do in this situation? Um, they can be medical related. They can't, they cannot be, okay, they, sorry. They, they don't have to be, can, yeah. Yeah, they don't have to be mm. uh, medically related questions as well. Um, I also had one that was like, this is your roommate and you had a like conflict. How would you resolve that? Something like that. Um, and they can also be personal as well. So. I had a few MMIs where some stations, they would also ask like, why the school or why medicine? Um, so you gotta be prepared for anything in those MMIs. Um, and I actually recommend a book um, that I actually read pr to prepare and it's called Multiple Mini Interview MMI, Winning Strategies from Admissions Faculty. And it's by Samir Desai, D-E-S-A-I. Mm -hmm. um, I think he like, pioneered one of like the first schools that started using the MMI um, and it was a very good book it like taught you how to like process the questions they give you what to think about what um, what they want to hear and there's really no right answer but they kind of want you to be able to think in every person's shoes in that situation um, so that book really helped me like have a methodological like way to approach all of these questions in the MMI. Mm -hmm. um, and I will have to say, I think MMI is actually my favorite type of interview. And I think I also thrive the best <laughs> in those type <laughs> of interviews as well. Um, so it's a little bit daunting for most pre-meds, but in my opinion, it's my favorite. Um, so as long as you know how to approach it. I would also do lots of practice for that. Um, 
my school, my undergraduate school offered, and then my practice um, like once every cycle. Um, so I went to mine for that. Um, and I also had uh, my Wellesley pre-med advisor also give me like a fake um, in my interview um, where she she was the only person that was at the station, but she asked me a bunch of questions with the same time period. You only get like seven minutes or five minutes for some schools. Mm. Um, so I would just do a lot of practice if you can. And you can also read a lot of scenarios too online and practice on your own. Yeah, Interesting. So, um, that's the MMI. So that's only one. Um, the other two, sorry, this is getting a little long. No, no, no. Um, we want to know two, this. Yeah. We need this. This is helping us as well. <laughs> yeah. So the other two are just traditional interviews. And the reason why I say there's two types is because there's one that's like the um, open file one where they have access to all of your your whole application. And then there's the closed file one. And the reason why I split them up is because I've, I personally have found them to be extremely different. Um, the closed file ones, they know nothing about me. They don't know my GPA. They only know my name. Um, so I have to make an impression to them in the 30 minutes to an hour that I have with them. Um, and they have like no background on me except what I look like and my name. Um, so I feel like those are, I enjoy them a lot because they come in with like zero preconceived like notions about you. Um, so you're really able to just be yourself, um, really tell them like who you are. Um, and usually the questions they ask are the ones that like, they really want to get to know you because they don't know anything about you. Um, then the closed file ones, they usually come in with more app specific questions. So they already have your file in front of you. One of my interviewers like literally just like read things off to me and was like, okay, could you talk about this more? Or, oh, like, this is great. Like you've done X and Y. Um, and I think that's cool that you've done it. And then they move on. So like, it's very different experiences. Um, and you kind of have to be prepared for both. Um, and you want to do research on your school before you go into these interviews on which one it is like open file versus closed file, yeah. um, because you'll need to be prepared how to answer these questions better and make you a better applicant or more prepared applicant, um, in these two different interview types um and I guess uh, within that there's like faculty versus student interviews I've had some schools that have like multiple like there's I would have two like one faculty would interview me and one student would interview me um but I would say those are actually very similar like the um questions they ask are pretty similar um except that the students when you're asking them questions you can ask them different questions so you know you would ask a faculty like you know, what type of student do you see coming here? Or, you know, what's your favorite part about teaching here? Um, versus the students, you can ask them like more about, you know, student life, um, their pro professors. Um, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Wasn't there like one situation and you don't have to drop the school mm -hmm. name, obviously, but where like the students <laughs> literally said, don't come here. Like, please <laughs> do yourself a uh, favor. There was, they didn't say it like that directly, <laughs> but they basically said it. Um, I did interview at one school where I did get into the school, um, but they were like, yeah, um, it's really expensive to come here. And they, most schools are um, pass fail. So actually when um, you guys asked what is important to me, actually pass fail 
systems is really important to me, but most MD schools are pass-fail now, which is why I didn't bring it up because almost every school is. However, this school was not. They grade every block um, and that's extremely stressful. And the students that were there basically told us that like, if you can, don't come to a school that is graded because we don't have a life. (laughs) 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 And they had exams every Monday, which sucked because your entire weekend is spent studying Mm -hmm. and they would go right back to class right after the exam Monday morning. So So just a constant, just exam, 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 no breaks. Yeah. Yep. I heard that. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not coming here. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have any uh, interview questions that like kind of completely, completely threw you off guard? Uh, yes, I did. Um, I'm not allowed, I think I'm allowed to say this. Um, if, if, if you're I, not, then I, it's okay. Yeah, I, I, I think I can say it if I don't drop the name of the school. So yeah. it's okay. They're probably going <laughs> to listen to us anyway. <laughs> yeah, <definitely. laughs> um, I did have a school ask me where else I applied and they actually already knew what school I had gotten into which I was super it's that's not allowed it's illegal Mm -hmm. um they have like really strict traffic rules to like when the schools you've applied to know when you've committed to another school or if you were accepted at another school um and that's mainly for them to know if you've like committed at two places which is illegal as well um so that they know like who to move off the wait list etc um but yeah they knew and I don't know how they found out um so I was really, really thrown off by that and actually had a bad interview because of that, because I was just so shocked and I didn't know how to respond. Um, I didn't want to, you know, like ruin my chances at that school by telling them exactly where I've applied. Um, but I also didn't want to lie. So I ended mm-hmm. up not lying. I just told them. <laughs> Honesty is the best policy in my head. So whatever yeah. happens, happens. I stuck by my morals, my ethics. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was, I think, the most surprising. Um, but the other ones are pretty standard, I would say. Um, one that I had that was actually pretty interesting recently was um, how my friends would describe. No. They had asked the typical how my friends would describe me, but then also turned it around and said how I would describe my friends. A little bit thrown off by that mm-hmm. one. I didn't really know how to answer because um, I never have been asked that. But I mean, I went, it, it, I answered it. But that was a little bit of a surprising question. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they don't ask me that. There's no way. <laughs> they asked me to talk about Nodide and Prem and Ninos. <laughs> how are my friends like? Oh, yeah. well, <laughs> here's the thing. <laughs> Anyways. No. And then I'm also curious. Could you give us kind of like an estimation of like when you started writing your application, when you submitted, when you started receiving like secondaries, when you got your interview and then kind of like when you got your results? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I would say this does vary from person to person. So I'll talk about like my personal experience. Mm-hmm. So my undergraduate actually forces us to complete this like 20 page packet on how ready we are to apply. Um, so that gives you an idea of like how serious it is when you do decide to apply um, in January. So it was due at the end of January. So I spent a winter break basically just answering those questions. And it ranges from questions like, you know, like, did you take your MCAT versus, um, you know, like, what are your service opportunities that you like had like great experiences in? Um, they even asked like, 
Um, what is your worst experience in medicine? Um, so it just forced me to think a lot about, you know, is this the right choice for me? Am I ready to apply this year? Um, and that was in January of mm-hmm. last year, so 2021. Um, and then at that point, we also had to submit a personal statement. So I just drafted one. It was a very rough draft, um, and I turned it into my school. <laughs> Uh, but I did keep working on my personal statement as well as my activities between January and I would say April-ish. Um, and then in April, I was writing my thesis. So I basically didn't touch my application at all. Um, turned in my master's thesis May 20th. Um, applications were opened, I think, May 28th, something like that. It was a very tight turnaround, but I did have time to go back and like review my personal statement as well as my activities for my primary application um, and really just perfected them uh, over the course of like a couple of days. Um, but I would say they were mostly ready by April. Um, and I did that because I knew I would be busy with my thesis in mm-hmm. April and May, yeah. Um, and then they've been moving the uh, MCAS like open like submission date closer and closer to May every year. And I don't know when it will open this year. I think it might be out already. So you guys could check that. Um, but mine was, I think like one of the last days of May. Um, I submitted day one. Um, I would highly rec if you can submit within the first week to submit within the first week. And the reason being is you have to have your primary app verified Um, All they do is like match your transcript to all the classes that you put in to MCAS, um, as well as the grades you put in um, to make, oh, they also verify like your personal information. Um, So if you can imagine, they're going to do that for like 5,000 people within the probably the first week. Um, So the earlier you submit your application, the earlier your application will get verified and thus sent to the schools that you um, indicated to be sent to. Um, yeah, so I submitted on day one. Um, I have friends that submitted within two weeks and have had great results. So um, just earlier, the better, but make mm-hmm. sure you do have a complete application you're happy with before you send it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was end of May. And then I was verified the first day they announced verification. So there's like a, I want to say like three week period. I think it was like June 20th, something like that where you're official, they officially start verifying people, but they do verify in between. They just give them themselves that time period to verify. Um, and after you get verified, you're immediately sent to the schools you applied to. And that's when you can start getting secondaries. Um, some schools will send them immediately. Like for example, like Stanford will send all of their applicants uh, secondaries, regardless of you've, you fit their criteria or not. Um, so um, yeah, you can get upwards of like 15 on the first day um, that school starts sending out secondaries. I think I got like nine or 10 on the first day. Oh, and with, wow. yeah, and within two weeks, I think I had about 30 secondaries sitting in my inbox. Um, yeah, and I did actually apply to 52 schools. Um, I only completed secondaries for 45. Um, and part of that is like some schools didn't send me secondaries at all if they don't think that I would go to their school or if I didn't fit their like GPA requirements or MCAT or I was just wasn't what they were looking for. Um, 
but some schools we just send it to everyone. So you kind of have to like prioritize at that point which schools are important to you. So for me, I prioritized every California school because California resident, and that's where I want to end up, hopefully. Um, and then after that, I prioritized privates because I have a better chance at out of state privates versus out of state or yeah, out of state like state schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and I prioritized places I would know I would probably fit with their mission more. Um, and I would say I received most of my secondaries within the first month between June and July. Um, and it was just a constant barrage of writing. Um, I think I took two weeks off work. Yeah, I took two weeks wow. off work. Um, and I finished 25 secondaries in those two weeks. Um, and then the rest of them I just completed. I think I still took a couple days off here and there if I felt mm-hmm. like I was getting behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was just writing like after hours in the mornings on the weekends, um, just trying to send those secondaries out. Um, I finished all my secondaries, uh, sorry, most of my secondaries by August, the first week of August. Um, and then I received like maybe two secondaries in like September and October. They were kind of like funny schools. Alexa, stop. (laughs) <laughs> can we cut that out <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No <laughs> oh, it would be funny though <laughs> we might keep it in we'll see <laughs> okay. All right. um, whenever yeah. alexa's ready oh, <laughs> alexa stop <laughs> it was it started in september what's that song i have no idea <laughs> yeah <laughs> of course um, not i was um i don't know why she thought that but anyways um yeah secondaries um i there was like a few schools that do screen like pretty intensely i think it was like riverside and ucsf um so i got those like in october or something like that so i wrote those then um but by that time i had gotten interviews already so my first interview was in early no late september or early october i think um and at that point I also got no sorry it was in September yeah September um early September I think and I had two interviews and the rest of my invites came between that time so August September till the last one I received was in actually last week oh wow, <laughs> oh, wow. yeah um so and I heard some schools even interview into March so it's all game even now mm-hmm. um which is why I said at the beginning I have no idea how things will play out yeah. uh, it's a long process yeah, yeah they um, keep you on your toes they truly do it's very long process because from the time you submit to the time you know which school you're going to go to is about a year actual yeah. 12 months yeah um yeah, and I interviewed throughout September. I got my first acceptance actually pre-October 15th. So October 15th is the first day the MD schools can start sending out acceptances. Um, but I did apply to five DO schools and I had two interviews at those DO schools um, prior to October 15th. So I actually heard back October, like I think first or second, very early October. Mm from a DO school so that was already a relief because I knew I had somewhere to go um but um October 15th 
came and passed. And then October, I think 19th, something like that, a couple of days later, I heard from my first medical school, my one and only MD interview prior to that, and I was accepted there. Um, that's the first day you can hear. And then after that, you can hear at any point um, mm. up until like the day before med school starts. Wow. Um, yeah. So um, the rest of my, usually schools though, they will, they're pretty considerate. Most schools that I've interviewed at, um, they will say like, oh, you'll hear with like within four to six weeks or within two months, something like that. Um, because that's the time it takes for them to process their interview, post-interview um, review. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually they're pretty good about it. Like, I don't think I've had a school that has like ghosted me after an interview yet. Um, mm. They either would like waitlist me or they would like accept me. Um, thankfully, no rejections, post-interview rejections yet. Thank God. That's great. Awesome. <laughs> um, I think those are kind of rare. It's like if you're like really not what they were looking for. Um, yeah. But they're very selective for interviews already. So usually you get put on a wait list. Yeah, usually, I, I, yeah. You always hear like there's like a 33% chance or something like that. Maybe like general mm-hmm. statistics speaking. Yeah. But I feel like if you can, if you practice interviews and you kind of are just mm-hmm. personable, mm-hmm. And I, this, you already know the school wants you, you know, and yeah, I, they exactly. just want to know you, who you are, put a face to the name. Right. So it's like at that right. point, it's like, mm-hmm. if you're just you genuinely you and you fit with the school's mission, I think you're, you should be yeah. good. Right? Yeah. Like, if you make it to interviews, like a good way to think about it is you're interviewing for a spot or, a, or you're interviewing for a wait list spot. Mm. Like that's literally what it is because yeah, acceptance rates, I think at some of the schools post interview was like 50%. I think the lowest I saw was 25%. So it's actually a really good chance um, mm-hmm. compared to, you know, the 3% you usually see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And then you do have to commit to school. So like looking ahead, um, you do have to commit to three. If you are blessed enough to receive more than three acceptances, you need to narrow your down, narrow down your choices by April 15th. I think that's Mm. the date this year. Um, You have to have only three schools on your list that you are planning to enroll at. Actually, no. Yeah. Commit. No. Yeah. It is plan to enroll, plan to enroll. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on April 30th, you have to choose one school and you commit to enroll to that one school. After April 30th and all the schools know who's coming and who's not, that's when waitlist movement happens. Um, so you can write, most schools allow you to write a letter of uh, intent to schools that you're currently waitlisted wait at. Um, so if, for example, if you're waitlisted at, it, at your like top school and you know you would go to that school over any other school that you've been accepted at, you would write a letter of intent to them on April 30th and say, you know, if you took me today, I will go to your school. Um, and then they will process all of that, re-review their applicants, um, the ones that have been accepted and committed versus the ones that are on the waitlist. And then they'll take people off the waitlist throughout May, June, July, even up until you start medical school, usually in August. Mm. So it is a very long process, but that's kind of an outline of when things kind of happen. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for going over that. It made things a lot clearer. Yeah. You kind of don't know anything until you live it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's so for... complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so much anxiety. <laughs> yeah. You guys will be fine though. If you prepare, I think that's one thing a lot of people have told me that like 
they were really anxious throughout their cycle. Um, but if you truly apply when you're ready, uh, I think I think it like you will have a lot less anxiety. I'm not gonna say it was not a, or like I didn't have anxiety. I definitely did. Um, but I think I've been at more peace than I expected to. Um, and partly because I've been accepted, um, but because also I think my schools list was so well thought out. Like I had a very broad school list that I knew that I had a chance at the schools that I was applying to. So if you're prepared, you do your research, you, you know, you're actually ready to apply. I think you guys will be okay. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, let's segue into some some tips that you've picked up in prepping for your first year at med school. Nora, do you want to take it away? Or who wants to take it away? Yeah. Um, how do you feel currently about like making the next transition into medical school? How are you feeling? Um, I don't feel like I'm ready. <laughs> um, I think partly because I'm still in the cycle. Um, and it doesn't really feel real that I'm not going to be a pre-med anymore. And I'm going to be going... <laughs> In, I'm going to be a med student soon because um, I'm very like I literally finished my last interview last Friday um, or last scheduled interview I don't know if there's gonna be more mm. um, but um, so I'm still really fresh off like the cycle um, haven't really thought too far um, but definitely a lot of like imposter syndrome I think which is a little bit unexpected because you feel like you know maybe when you made it like we've been dreaming of getting into med- medical school for all these years and you finally make it and you're like, wait, was I supposed to make it? <laughs> so there's like a little bit of that. Um, but also like a lot of like just being excited, um, knowing that this is what I've worked for for so long, finally get to do what I get to do. But also a lot of, um, you know, I need to enjoy my life before I become a medical student. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so making plans for, you know, some fun stuff, scheduling that. I think that's how I'm going to prepare for medical school. Um, Yeah, finally get to let loose a little bit, um, have some fun, um, visit family, hopefully in uh, Taiwan, where I'm from. Um, Mm -hmm. The pandemic has kind of ruined all travel plans, but hopefully I can go back Um, and not thinking too much about studying. Yeah. yeah, that's the best way to prepare. Yeah, that's what almost everyone I've talked to ha- has told me. They're like, you're going to do enough studying. Don't pre-study. Don't don't think too much. Don't worry too much, you know, about like matching or like extracurriculars that you need to do in medical school to get into residency to just enjoy because this is the only time between pre-med and medical school that you'll get to think about nothing and not have <laughs> to worry about, you know, the next step because unfortunately medicine is such a long road that we're always planning like five years ahead (laughs) that's true i think you earned definitely earned a long vacation yes yes definitely (laughs) a few few mimosas on the beach you know hopefully hopefully (laughs) covid allowing (laughs) what do you uh what do you expect from your first year like what do you think you're gonna have to make some big adjustments or you think you're you're gonna be fine um i mean given that you were balancing a full-time work schedule and you know, that's the full-time work schedule, full-time school schedule. And not only that, but off the side training us students while we were students <laughs> and also and doing secondary and all this. It's like, I feel mm-hmm. like you've got your time adjustments pretty down. Do you feel like you're going to yeah. have to make any big adjustments more or that's um, something you'll just figure out as time comes? 
I feel like okay yeah so last year I was working full-time while pursuing my master's while doing you know all the pre like application things like writing secondaries writing primaries etc um that was a very tough time um and I really had to learn how to um spend my time so I don't usually live like that though I don't usually wake up at 5 a.m and write two secondaries before going to work and then coming back and doing homework you know um so I think I'll have to train a little bit you know to get back to that level of of work working like like that's basically being on the go like using your brain for like 16 hours a day um and I haven't done that since I finished secondaries um so I definitely think there's going to be an adjustment period where, where I'll have to like slowly work back up to that but I will say that like the everything I've done in my pre-med years I think has prepared me I think I think I don't know yet I'll keep you guys updated (laughs) 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 I think for med school in terms of like time management learning what works best for me what times work like what time my brain's working how many hours I need to sleep to feel functional um exercises I do that make me feel good Mm -hmm. foods I eat that you know keep me healthy and being able to function and use my brain um so I I hope that I can take all of those like tools out in the future when I'm adjusting to medical school yeah and like learning to study I'm sure will be another ball game like I've always heard like it's nothing it's like nothing you've ever experienced before um so I think definitely that's going to be an adjustment like learning how to study that much material in such little time with such little like brain capacity but actually a lot of medical school students I've been talking to lately have said that their work-life balance is actually pretty good um because they just treat studying like a nine-to-five job like they study x amount of hours and then make sure to take time off on the weekends etc so and the pass fail system I think is um really conducive to that as well as step one which is like the board exam that we have to take at the end of your clinical years yeah. Uh, sorry, preclinical years um, being pass fail as well. Um, it used to be graded until this year, or oh, like, really? it used to be like uh, basically like your MCAT, like where you get a score, and the higher yeah. you score, the better chance you have of getting into a good residency program. Mm-hmm. But since now it's pass fail, a lot of people focus more on extracurriculars, um, you know, me time, taking time to decompress, be a human, <laughs> um, because a lot of that like scoring thing doesn't really matter anymore. Awesome. Does anybody have any other questions to add for Erica? I think we're good here. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you a lot, Erica. I can't even begin to explain how much this helped us specifically. And I'm sure it helped a lot of our viewers who are listening as well, kind of early in into this pre-med game and thinking about their future. I mean, we're almost there. We're right now studying for the MCAT. We're actively thinking every day like okay mcat 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 and then we're thinking tomorrow is application 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 (laughs) application so where it's like we're at that cusp you know Mm -hmm. i think it's just good exciting it is it is yeah it is extremely extremely exciting like we're all very much looking forward to see what happens and Mm -hmm. you know it's it's been it's an awesome experience i think it's a journey and you kind of find yourself somewhat in this journey too you really everything you pick up along the way it kind of comes into this moment and this moment it's like okay like now time to show it let's see your work ethic now let's see your competence now and everything you know and yeah so 
again, thank you so much. This was great advice and we're really excited for you as well. You know, congratulations <laughs> on your acceptances. <laughs> thank and, you very um, much. Yeah. And if you do get further interviews, go in them knowing like, Hey, I'm already in. So why, yes, why should I come basically. to you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you have to offer for me? You know? <laughs> so, yeah. There you go. That's awesome. Eric. Okay. Thank you so much guys. And Metsters, uh, we're going to be doing some follow-up episodes. We're going to be really diving deep into applications and some MCAT tips. We'll be also talking to more medical students and yeah. So hope to have you again in one day, Erica soon, maybe after you start at medical school once again, and then we'll yeah. get an update from you and see how you like it. <laughs> yeah, I'll be happy to. Awesome. And excited to hear about you guys too. Once you guys of course, start applying of as course. well. We'll keep Hopefully you up. we have good news. Hopefully you we have good news. Will. <laughs> you will. You will. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Thank, thank you guys. You and well. Of course. Thank you. Man. Um, thank you so much, Erica. Metsters. See you guys soon. Peace out.